Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is Ben Reiser. I'm a programmer here at Cinematheque and also for the Wisconsin Film Festival. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues its series of view-at-home cinema programs this week with two films originally scheduled to screen at our 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival as part of our Wisconsin's own programming. You can find out more about Determined, a feature-length documentary about Alzheimer's research in Wisconsin, on a separate episode of Cinema Talk, available on our website, cinema.wisc.edu, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode focuses on our other offering this week, The Rabbi Goes West. In this disarming, provocative documentary by Jerry Perry and Amy Geller, Brooklyn-born Rabbi Chaim Brook moves to the unlikely locale of Bozeman, Montana, placed there by Chabad, a branch of Hasidic Judaism that puts a high value on outreach. Members of the local Reform and conservative Jewish communities are not entirely receptive to the methods of this charismatic interloper who has made a pledge to place a mezuzah on the doorpost of every Jew in Montana. Sparks fly when Rabbi Chaim and Bozeman's Reform Rabbi clash on issues such as support of Israel, women's rights, and interpretations of the Torah. But there's a real threat to all the Jews of Montana when neo-Nazis cyber-attack the local rabbis. Beginning December 10th, the Cinematheque is offering a limited number of opportunities to view both The Rabbi Goes West and Determined online, at home, for free. To receive access to these films, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu and include the initials WFF in the subject line or first sentence of the email. No additional message is required or necessary, and we will reply with instructions on how to view the films at home. On this podcast, I welcome the husband and wife filmmaking team behind The Rabbi Goes West. Jerry Perry should be familiar to Wisconsin Film Festival audiences. In recent years, he's been a guest of the festival twice. In 2013, as a cast member of Andrew Bujalski's Computer Chess, and in 2016, to present his documentary feature, Archie's Betty. Jerry received a Ph.D. in communications from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1977, and, in addition to being a filmmaker, has had a long career in film criticism and journalism, with his work appearing in the Boston Globe, the L.A. Times, and many other publications. Amy Geller's award-winning productions, PBS's The War That Made America from 2005, For the Love of Movies in 2009, and The Guys Next Door in 2016, which she co-directed, have been broadcast and screened at prestigious film festivals around the world. She served as the artistic director of the Boston Jewish Film Festival and teaches production courses at Boston University. Here now is my conversation with Jerry and Amy. Jerry and Amy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I wish we could have done this in person back in April at the film festival, but that did not work out, as we all know. And so uh, hopefully this is the next best thing. I wanted to ask you, first off, how did this project rabbi goes west how did it come about how did it start and when did it start the project originated with my idea that i wanted to make a film that connected somehow with my jewishness and i so i went and thought of all the different jewish things what would be a possible film and i came up with this idea of mezuzahs 
So for people who are not Jewish, uh, a mezuzah is this little scroll that Jews put up on their doorpost as a protection with the verses from Deuteronomy inside them. So I said, uh, let's do a mezuzah movie. And I looked for every possible mezuzah thing on, on the internet, in books, I, you know, every movie reference to mezuzahs, it was all really interesting. And then one day on the internet, I came across this true life story of a, a Hasidic rabbi in Bozeman, Montana, who has a pledge to put a mezuzah on the doorpost of every Jew in the state of Montana. And Montana is huge. It's like from Boston to Washington, D.C. And this rabbi goes around the state putting up mezuzahs. So we thought, wow, that's really an interesting story. It's also a story of obsession, which often is a good subject for movies. So anyway, so I called uh, Rabbi Chaim Brook on the telephone. He answered, and I asked him, um, is there any chance we could come out to Bozeman, Montana, and watch you put up mezuzahs? And he said, sure, come on out. And so Amy and I, without knowing anything about our movie, what it was going to be about, we hopped on a plane. We'd never been to Montana, which we heard is beautiful, and is beautiful. And we got off, and we met Rabbi Chaim, and uh, the rest is history, this evolving movie. What kind of time and what kind of persuasion did it take for him to agree to become the subject of the film and to spend all this time with you and you following him around. And were there any stipulations made in that agreement about what you could or couldn't film and whether he had any sort of editorial say in the final piece? So we started filming in, I think, the summer of 2016. And like Jerry said, he just invited us out there. He's not, I mean, you could tell if you see the movie, he's, he's um, a man of action. <laughs> So he's not about, you know, talking and negotiating. It's like, if you want to come out, come out and make it happen. So we came out there. He was incredibly open um, from the get-go, just completely opened his life. Um, we did not know that we knew he was married, of course, but we didn't realize that he had three adopted children at that time. And um, so he was, you know, he and his wife just pretty much the first time we filmed, um, were very gracious and, and really opened up their lives to us. We also didn't know that there was a second synagogue in Bozeman, Montana, in the same town that Rabbi Haim was, was in. Um, and so we discovered that on the first trip that we took to Montana. And we didn't realize that there was some tension between those two rabbis. So initially, the concept was Jerry says we knew nothing. We knew a little bit and we thought, okay, this would make a great short film because we knew he was, you know, this obsessive about putting up mezuzahs across the state of Montana, but we didn't know that there was another rabbi. We didn't realize he had adopted children, which is, you know, sort of tabooish in the Orthodox Jewish world. And, and so we started to learn that he was a little bit more of a pioneer than we had realized. And I think Hayam is very used to doing publicity. So he was sort of imagining it like a news piece. You know, the news crew comes in for a day, maybe a few hours, they film with you and your family, they cut the piece and it's on TV, you know, within, I don't know, 46 hours or something. And we sort of had to explain like, this is not that, this is, you know, a film. A film takes time. We might come visit you more than once. We might ask you the same questions a, a bunch of different ways. And we want to sort of see life as it's unfolding. And so he learned a lot about the process of filmmaking. And, and I think he was 
again, very, very generous, but you know, understandably like less and less patient over time. And, and like a lot of subjects, you know, we're sort of like, well, when's this movie going to be done? It was definitely worked in reverse. Most subjects take time to develop a relationship with, and then they open up their lives to you more and more. He was very open and then he sort of got a little more, he still kept his access to him very open, but I think he was concerned about his family, as I think, you know, any parent would be, he was protective of his children. And so we, Jerry can talk a little bit more about this, but we, we absolutely respected that. Now, the only rules I, I set were that in this film, uh, I will be very respectful of your family. I will be respectful of your, of your synagogue, of the people in the synagogue. But you are kind of an open target, and it's possible there will be criticisms of you in this film. And that is what he agreed to. Um, he didn't know if I would be true to what I promised. I think one thing that's very interesting in the film um, is this. A lot of people say, God, you, uh, the people were so open everywhere. Everybody was so happy to talk to you. Well, as Amy said, he was at first, but not so much after a while. And in fact, almost everybody in the film that we interviewed was very suspicious of us because uh, they had no idea what our agenda is. We could sell them out in a second, which is true. It was only after the film was done when people looked at it that they could decide whether we were fair or not. And in Chaim's case, he was really pleasantly surprised that we were so fair to him. And he has said, and he likes the film now and he likes us. And he has said, and we're kind of proud of it. This is the only film in the world that's ever been made by non-Hasids, which is fair to the Hasidic community. Doesn't mean we you know we're not Hasids, we're not even religious Jews, but we didn't go in to attack Hasidism, which a lot of films do do. A lot of secular films go in to say how terrible this cult is, and then the secular audience applauds them for saying, you know, agreeing with what they already agree with. Um, so our film was a challenge to non uh, Hasids to be a little, a little bit more open to see. There, you know, there are reasons for why the Hasids do things as they do, and our movie tries to show them, to articulate them. You know, Jerry's a longtime journalist, and so a big discussion or point that we had with Hayam was like, you know, like any journalist, I'm going to be fair, but it's not a puff piece. You know, we're not making a pro or anti-Habad movie. We're trying to make a, a fair, um, and, and I don't like the word balanced because I think, you know, you strive for that, but inevitably there's there's the filmmaker's hand in the process of the film. But I think we really worked hard to to be fair, to represent and the best arguments for each particular uh, subject in our film. And we were very honest with all of our subjects that we, we told them what we were doing. You know, we, we were, what I just said to you was as transparent as we were to them. Um, so that's sort of why they were probably a little suspicious because they were 100% sure that we were going to be able to achieve that. I'm Jewish. And so I have my reaction to the elements of Judaism that are discussed in the different factions. And, and I think I feel like the film plays one way uh, to people with a, a Jewish upbringing of some kind and probably quite differently to non-Jews who don't sort of have a dog in this fight per se. Yes, that's absolutely true. And we and we really encourage non-Jews to see the film because we have found that non-Jews 
as you said, had, you know, or just watching with open eyes, really like the movie because they learned so much about Judaism. That's 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 it. We've heard that again and again. Thank you so much for teaching us stuff. But you're right; they're not rooting for one side or another side. Although there are some, uh, you know, non-Jews who ha who hate anything slightly evangelical, and therefore watching this movie that touches that nerve with Hasidism. But in general, uh, I'd say all in all, we've had an extraordinary um, success with audiences. We've shown it to you know, Chabad to the actual Hasidic people, and they thank us for a fair movie. And we've shown it to, I guess, you know, the most uh, left-wing Jewish film festivals, like ones in Boston and in San Francisco. And we've, and the audiences really like the film. So they haven't complained that this is a, you know, a rightist or an, you know, a religious a, attack on secularism. So Amy and I are very, very happy about the response. I want to ask, as filmmakers and and Jews, how how difficult was it for you to maintain your sort of neutrality? And how often did you find yourself having to sort of bite your tongue or, uh, you know, sort of take a deep breath and, and just let people say what they wanted to say without you sort of influencing what your attitude might be about that? Well, for me, it's easy. As, as Amy said, I'm a journalist for 40 years. So I have learned to be quiet while people make arguments, which I don't agree with. And, and as Amy said, our object, and this is you know, the credo of good journalism is to have everybody give their best argument. And if you're interrupting or rolling your eyes, people won't do that. Well, I think the other piece is that we really went out with the intention of, you know, we're, this was, it was sort of the height of the, or the beginning of the height. <laughs> of the of the polemical feeling that you know that that we we just have very different ways of being in uh the united states and that we were really trying to attempt to see like can we connect with somebody who has very different religious beliefs in a place we had never been in a place we had a lot of our own misconceptions about and we tried to be sort of to honor that as best we could. Um, so even if we vehemently disagreed with a particular political angle or a particular religious belief, we essentially tried to just listen. And um, and I think for the most part, we did that. I think there's, there's like one thing, the one area, Jerry, where you and Hayam, I think debated, and it's a little bit in the film, the, the, the sort of messianic piece. Um, and that was maybe the one area where you, I mean, at least when we've talked to Haim in, in person at Q and A's, you've, you've yeah. kind of said, that's just, that's just a, an area where like we agree to disagree. In person, well, Haim has done panels with us of discussion. And I, at that point, I'm much more overt and, you know, I've, Chaim Brook is a, believes that the Messiah will be coming. And I say very openly, I don't want the Messiah to come, Chaim. Absolutely. You want it? You want life as it is? Yes, I do. As awful as it is, I will take life on earth here. I do not want to be taken off to some Hasidic uh, paradise. Keep me on earth. Did you find yourselves sort of decompressing at the end of these shooting days with each other to sort of? That describes our whole, no, it describes our <laughs> our whole process every day in the editing room. It's, I think it's irrelevant. And decompressing is a very 
gentle word for uh, for being just still caught in the story 24 hours a day and never never decompressing. I think that's it. Decompressing is not part of filmmaking. If you make films with your partner, as Amy and I have decided to do, uh, a, a masochistic thing with wonderful results, but still it's very, very painful to, to keep doing it. But it was true when we were in Montana, actually, uh, because Montana is so beautiful, we actually did... I guess decompress a couple of times. Like we went to a spa one day after shooting all day, and and so yeah, hiking in the mountains. Hiking in the mountains, yeah, yeah. which is stunning. But I think maybe what we did do is, you know, this this is a very different filmmaking process than I would traditionally do, where we we kind of cut this film while we. I mean, this is not different. We cut it while we were filming, and then we would show very rough edits to a kind of small group of trusted filmmaker, editor friends or whatever in Boston. And then we would actually get feedback while we went. So that way that would inform the next shoots that we would do because what would inevitably happen is things that we thought we understood would be very confusing and very complicated to other people. We also realized that there, was, there were tons of misconceptions about Chabad that we didn't even know ourselves. And, but we would show to, some other filmmakers, some of whom were Jewish and had more experiences with Chabad than we had. And so they would share some of what they had heard or, you know, the, the cult stuff, or they get money from the Chabad headquarters or sort of these kinds of things. And so we would then be like, okay, we, we need to go find out if this is in fact the case. And we did a lot of outside reading. There's a, there's a wonderful book called The Rebbe's Army that um, is sort of a, a look into this, the, the world of the Chabad and the um, the importance of the of Rabbi Schneerson, who is in our film. There's, a, there's several scenes with Chaim interacting with, uh, he's no longer on this earth, but you know he still has a very big impact in the Chabad world. Uh, so I think that process was different. So that was kind of our decompression, but Jerry's right. We debrief on a regular basis about the world, what's happening in the world about politics. We sort of argue and debate. That's part of our relationship. Haim describes himself as God's salesman. And I'm wondering if you think of this film as a portrait of a salesman in the tradition of like the Maisel's brothers salesman, or whether this film is something else. Like to what extent as filmmakers are you invested in sort of exploring or attempting to answer some of these questions about religion and the tension between the different branches of Judaism or more specifically um, the tension between Chabad and the other branches of Judaism? Well, we're definitely not there to answer them. We're there to put the problems out and have audiences answer them. We, we really trust our audience to make decisions about the material. It's our duty to present, as again, all the arguments pro and con on lots of issues and let audiences decide. So we are really proud of our scene in the film in which we brought together, maybe the, for the first time in film history, a uh, an Orthodox rabbi and a reform rabbi to argue about really key points in Judaism, whether it's Israel, whether it's women's rights, uh, whether it's uh, if the Bible is literally true, and had both rabbis just give the most articulate responses, but audience, you decide, not not us. But are you happy for audiences to see this as more of a portrait film of Chaim, or, or are you hoping that they that they will engage with this film in those other ways? Well, hopefully, you know, we like we you know it's a very entertaining picture of a 
salesman, if you want to bring up the measles film, um, that's a, a very sad, negative picture of being a salesman. And in this case, so we have, a, I guess, a happy salesman who's doing damn well and is selling the hell out of his product, which is Judaism. So, so it's, you know, and it's an upbeat film. If you are on the side of Chabad, if you think Chabad is the devil, the Chassid, then it's a, a, a it's a horror story about how Chabad is spreading its tail. Again, it's up to you to decide. So I think I think Amy would agree. You know, you it is your choice again what to take out of the film. But we love the love it if you find it this entertaining picture of a three dimensional figure, and if it additionally you answer for yourself. Or explore theological, spiritual questions. That's that's extra. That's fantastic. Well, I, I think the other thing that we would like is that if you have a if you have a, a sort of dogmatic, tough belief system, that you'll be open to maybe questioning that in some form. You know, you may not change it radically, but we've had friends who went in being very suspicious of Habad, and then they met Hayam through the course of the film, and you know they felt like, oh, there's parts of him that I, I really respect and really like. And there's other parts that I don't. And so I think that's a wonderful thing because I think part of, again, our mission is to sort of, is there a way to connect with people who are politically and religiously different? What are the areas of commonality and where, where are the places of connection? Uh, we know what the differences are. And we know where we're kind of, you know, maybe even a little stuck in the mud about those differences, but what, where, are the, where are the ways that we can connect? I, I mean, I don't mean to sound totally Pollyanna-ish, but I will say, like, we, we're friends with Javi and, and Hayam now. Again, we don't believe that all that they believe, and we haven't become more religiously Jewish, but we really respect them and their family and, you know, the community that they, they've created in Montana. And so that's been a wonderful outcome that we did not anticipate. Can you talk a little bit about your working relationship, the division of duties? Amy, I noticed that you're credited with sound for this film, which is, I guess, a very Frederick Weissman move. How big of an extent do you feel like you've been influenced by him? And and, and talk more about who does what. Yeah, Fred. What, what did you do? <laughs> Fred. Okay, I'm not. I'm definitely not Frederick Weissman, but there's only one Frederick Weissman. But yeah, no, we had an amazing camera person, David Reeder, who also was one of our editors, and he's just a sort of technical genius. I worked with him, supported him. I'm more technical than Jerry is, so definitely, you know, being able to get in there and hold the boom and um, help to record sound is where I thrive. Jerry tends to do the interviews, but you know, I'll also throw in questions, you know, whispering things in his ear. Uh, I was on all the sets or on location, you know, where Hayam was, like we said, very open and, and sort of nothing that we filmed with the exception of the um, debate between the two rabbis was constructed. So it was really, we just, Hayam invited us to this location and we brought our camera and our, and our mics and started filming you know, helping to coordinate all that and make sure everybody's where they need to be. But then really, like in most documentaries, the story is made in the edit room. So we were, we had two wonderful editors, David Reeder being one of them, and Lucia Small, um, who's an excellent documentary filmmaker based in Boston in, in her own right. So we worked with them and sort of thrashed out, out the film in the edit room, which took, I don't know, like nine months to 12 months to do. And that's where, you know, Jerry and I clashed quite a bit. So Jerry can talk about that. Yes, we clashed quite a bit. Um, so that's, yes, 
really hard, but again, great in the end. I always say this, that uh, I am like a, a bit of a lazy person, a bit of a sloppy person, and I can, I, I like the Roger Corman kind of school of doing a, you know, a pretty good movie in a very enterprising way. And Amy, on the other hand, is a perfectionist, and she can't stand anything that's not perfect. So with this film, and I would say, well, okay, that's it. It's it's over. We the film is ready to go. Amy would completely say no, and it drove me crazy. But in the end, I have to. I'll give Amy credit for probably adding another 10, 15 percent of value to the film and aesthetics because the, she would not let uh, the dog who would not let go of the bone was Amy, and we have a, a better film because of Amy's insistence. I just will add that, you know, I know that you, you've shown many of Jerry's films over the years. And I think that what has been interesting, you know, Jerry is a journalist and a film critic and the professor, the, that was, those were his professions. And then he sort of became a filmmaker. And so initially he had no idea what that meant. <laughs> he was really coming at it from like the hobby point of view. Like, I don't know what's so hard about it. And so I'd say over the last 10 years of making movies, some of which we've worked on together, some of which he's done with other teams, he's really become a filmmaker. He understands that filmmaking isn't just getting to be out into the field and then doing one major edit in the edit room. It's a, a give and take process that requires all kinds of logistics and legal issues and practical pieces and they have to happen in a certain order at a certain time and he learned to respect that and so I, I really feel like on this film even though we we clashed like you you finally came to that process of like oh, this is what documentary filmmaking is and you know there are probably ways of moving faster than we moved because when you fight things, you definitely slow down the process. But I think I've worked now a couple of times with different partners on films, and I think it makes for better film when you have that debate and that discussion. And our editors are opinionated and they have their own views of things too. And so they're going to debate with us and that's going to be inc incorporated into the whole filmmaking process, which can be really, really depressing and anxiety causing at times. To be honest, sometimes we just were like, is this even a film? You know, and that happens. And at one point, our, one of our editors literally threw us both out of her house. She was so angry at us. But somehow we managed to coax her slowly back and we edited some more. But it's funny now. It wasn't funny that day, but. Um, it was not. Yeah, yeah. Filmmaking is crazy. It is very tough. Yeah, and, and Jerry, you've got you've got the sort of the writing credit on this film, and so I assume in a documentary that means that you ultimately were responsible for shaping the structure of the film and deciding what was going to be in and what wasn't, and what the story you were going to tell based on all the footage you had accumulated. I understand you were sort of cutting throughout the process, but is that right? Is that what writing? means in this context? No, I think no, I think we were both structured people. So maybe I'm just giving myself like a, a fake, like Donald Trump thinking he's in control of everything. I mean it was it was literally writing titles and writing those that was my job to to shape and get the exact right words on things like this. But I guess on other because I think important things we don't have a voiceover in this film. On both of the earlier films that I made, the writing credit I think makes more sense because uh, because we had 
a voiceover once, which was me, and once was Patricia Clarkson, and I wrote those words. So, uh, yeah, you caught me here. There's still things that Jerry has to learn about filmmaking. Yeah. But, but Amy being a producer, on the other hand, Amy is a fantastic producer. I think she's an artist as a producer. So, yeah, she produced the hell out of our film. She's great. Thanks, Jerry. This doesn't come up in the film, but you just mentioned the name Donald Trump. Did Donald Trump come up with Heim throughout any of the filming or afterwards? Do you, can you give us your your sense of where he falls on the? I know he talks about himself as a bit of a libertarian. Yeah, I think he. I think he really is a libertarian. He he will say that I'm a rightist on some issues. He'll say I'm a total right winger on Israel, which he is. But he's also a libertarian about uh, immigrant rights. One of his daughters is from somewhere in Eastern Europe, and he had to bring her here. He's an he is a uh, I guess a left winger about stem cell research. And, um, you know, he's very big on stem cell and he was really angry at George Bush for being against it. So he's all over the map. But about Trump, luckily, he is not a Trump fan. I know in the 19, we don't know how he voted this time, but the last time he voted for neither Hillary nor for. Um, Trump. He voted some kind of third party, which we're really glad of because we'd glad he didn't vote for Trump, but also that would kind of stick him in a way which would, I think, make a lot more people dislike him off the spot and not listen to his good spots. Because And that's you know true in the world that if we hear, we as non-Trumpians, if we hear somebody voted for Trump, we're very, very unlikely to listen to anything that they say, which is... Uh, Pretty unfair, and yeah, it's pretty unfair. So, as Amy has said, this, that's one of our attempts of this film is to have people listen to someone speak who they normally would not listen to speak, and that's definitely Heim. But you know, Heim is much more conservative. You know, we are super liberals. You know, I I went from Madison to Cambridge, Massachusetts. If people don't know, I'm a graduate student in Madison. I spent many years at at the student union and hanging out. And so uh, I've had, to, you know, lived in a complete um, blue bubble life of a blue bubble baby. And so being out there with Chaim and the kind of mostly red state of Montana, which did vote for Trump, was a, a big thing for Amy and I. And very, very interesting for us to do it. It's interesting because I have this following question written down and you just brought me right into it. And But it also sort of relates back to a previous question. So Jerry is somebody with a master's and a PhD. What was your reaction on the day to the discussion with the guys in Chabad about Chabad being on college campuses and the idea that it's a last chance to reach out to young people before they fall into that mess? Uh, and the statement that 80 or 90% of professors are liberal, which is an affliction that most people grow out of eventually. How hard was it for you to sort of bite, bite your tongue on that day? I bit it, but it was a, a great quote that gives you a real insight into the way Kabad thinks about things. And of course, I'm exactly one of those liberal professors, as is Amy. We're both college professors for exactly what he is complaining about, who are you know ruining religious students with our non-religious beliefs. But uh, yeah, but again, we wanted you to hear, again, if he, I don't think he's seen the film, this is the head of Chabad, but if he did, I think he liked that scene because he said what he believes and we didn't undercut it. And that's what we wanted, wanted to do in the film. 
Heim sort of puts forth his own kind of origin story during the course of the film. And when he talks about going out and exploring Bozeman for a month, who is the we that he's talking about? Is it this he and his wife? Or it was a little unclear to me whether Chabad sent him there or whether they just picked it independently and then came back to Brooklyn to pitch the idea about moving out there. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. So initially, you know, he was like a rabbi in training. And Chabad does send rabbis in training out to different places, just like any religious group tends to do, like, you know, this sort of a missionary kind of similar to, I guess, um, the Mormons. And so there was a need for, according to Chabad, you know, Chabad rabbis in Montana. So he went out there initially and really fell in love with the place and really felt like there should be a Chabad presence here, not just temporarily, but permanently. And so he then went back. I can't remember the chain of events. I think very soon in that time frame, he got married because in Chabad, they do tend to marry pretty young. And Javi grew up in San Antonio, Texas. So she in a Chabad also, she's the eldest of nine children. So I think she was very much, as she says in the film, like wanting to run her own Chabad and, you know, a pioneering woman in her own right. And so they met, they fell in love. It definitely was a great match. And then they lobbied Chabad headquarters to go to Montana. And and I don't think this is in the film, but Haim has said subsequently that there was some pushback because I don't think Chabad headquarters was convinced that there was enough Jews in Montana to actually set up a permanent Chabad community. But Haim made the case and they said yes. And so unlike the Mormons, he's he and Javi are there permanently forever and ever. That is now their home. And without sort of spoiling the very ending of the film, it seems like there's some more of the Javi and Haim family that that come out to set up their own residence and 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 congregations. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I'm going to Sorry. jump right in the middle of Ben's talk. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, how about perhaps, if there's an answer, we're not going to I think throughout the film, you make some wonderfully sort of subtle arguments and counterpoints to what we're hearing from people and seeing from people with the other things that you show. And one of the things that struck me was Haim's statement about Judaism being alive and well in Montana, largely because of his efforts. And yet we get to see lots of other synagogues and congregations and rabbis and Jewish people who are thriving and not due to his efforts. But do you get the sense of, of, of when he says things like that, how much self-awareness he has about, you know, how much his efforts have been responsible for whatever is or isn't happening in Montana? He's, you know, kind of a big-headed guy. We love him, but he definitely is. He's a larger-than-life guy, which, again, is good for movies. And I would just, can I just interject? Like, I think that's his personality. You know, I don't think that has to do with whether he's a Hasid or not. I think that's just about Hyambrook the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and that particular stage of life that he's in, (laughs) uh, that kind of Gen Z or, I don't know, millennial, I guess, stage of life, his big head is is about him, not about Chabad. Okay, he has a big head about him and not about Chabad. No, but he, but he, but Chabad has a belief, which, you know, I guess we can say we also find it questionable that Chabad is the only thing that counts, that other kinds of Judaism are not is legitimate Judaism. So when he says we're the only ones who count, he means that that the other, and he'll say it, the other synagogues, he says it in the film, I respect you as a rabbi, but I don't believe 
but other kinds of Judaism are legitimate Judaism. So the other Jews, other rabbis in the state feel they are not respected by him for what they believe. And they're right. They're not respected for what they believe. So he does think he's the only game in town. And again, we present the counter argument in the film. Another rabbi says, you think you're the only person in town. You're not. There are other rabbis. There are other, there are reform, you know, there can reform rabbis. There are um, conservative rabbis. You're not the only rabbi. Yeah. And, and as you, as you talked about a little bit earlier, certainly one of the sort of high points uh, dramatically of the film is the conversation between Chaim and Rabbi Ed Staffman. I wonder how much longer that conversation was in real life and whether we can expect sort of the uncut version as a blu-ray bonus feature or something like that oh we've heard that from so many people that's oh, really? interesting yeah <laughs> i mean you know to be honest a lot of it is sort of insider baseball in terms of the stuff they were arguing was was parsing religious names and it, it got very specific and a lot of times we had to be like we don't know what you're talking about you need to take it you know more macro I mean, there may be other moments that that we didn't include, but those sort of three or four pieces are the crux of of their differences. So that's that's it kind of typified or exemplified, you know, the rest of the conversation. So I don't know, you know, like I said, people have, have said, you know, we'd love to see the whole conversation, but I don't know that it would be as fulfilling as people imagine. I don't know, Jerry, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think there's more stuff in there. And I think it's a compliment to the scene that so many people want to see more because they've never seen this argument ever, ever, ever. Um, right. And it, I think Amy said before, this was the only scene in the film in which we set up, we, that we set up it's like a regular news team. We asked these two rabbis, would you appear and debate with each other? Neither of them wanted to do it. They did it as a very reluctant favor to Amy and I, and they had kind of a chip on their shoulders as they did it. And they're, you know, not the best friends. They they talk, they they get along okay in Bozeman, but they're not they're not pals in any way. And it was hard for them both to do the scene. And and uh, one thing about Chaim is that he's a person of certitude. He's a person with very little self doubt, which is. I think one of the reasons he's so charismatic, everybody else feels insecure and weird and, and doesn't know how they believe. And here's this guy that knows exactly he believes. But in that debate, he looked a little stymied at the end. He's a little gasping for air, his probably most vulnerable moment in the film. So usually in a film, we, you know, people learn something or they change that's the normal arc, especially the Hollywood arc. And in, with Haim, we described him as a straight arrow, an arrow that just goes zipping through. He's he, running, running, running the same way, beginning to end of the film. And that, that's who he is. He's the same at the end. And with some little more, more successes, he's a success story. You mentioned that you have maintained a relationship with Haim and um uh, how has, have you, have you stayed in touch with the other people we've seen in the film, the other rabbis and some of the other characters that we get to meet? Yeah, we, well, we've stayed in touch with Ed. Um, Ed retired from be, being a rabbi and decided to run for the legislature in Montana and ran and unopposed and won. So that was exciting. So he's on his third career now. He was a lawyer, a rabbi, and now, and now he's working in government. So that's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, right as COVID hit, we were planning on doing a summer event in Bozeman and possibly in Whitefish 
to screen the film and you know and have everybody come because um, although all the subjects have now seen the film we really wanted to celebrate and honor the people that participated especially the communities that let us in and that did not happen and you know who knows when that'll happen if ever but everybody's seen the film I think they think we were fair but I think that you know as Jerry often says like and I think this is true for a lot of people they would wish the film would be more about them and you know it, it it's mostly about Hayam but obviously they're very much a part of it and so you know I think there's some disappointment but I think that they felt that that we captured their best arguments and that you know we were fair to them as well so so yeah we we had premiered the film at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival and August of 2019, I guess. And so we were like in mid festival run. We were lucky because we'd had a lot of festivals and we got to go to a lot of festivals and be with audiences, which is, there's nothing like that. I mean, it's just the best. (laughs) So, and Hayam was able to come to a few of those screenings with us. And then our biggest month for screenings was happened to be March when, you know, everything shut down. And so that was for so many filmmakers, you know, and along with us, like it it was devastating, but it also was like, what's going to happen. And so we were, we sort of followed the, what was happening in in the conversations with other filmmakers, other festivals, you know, everybody was trying to scramble and figure out what are the opportunities that can be taken now and, and um, how can we support each other. And so, and there was like a demand for the film. I mean, people were contacting us saying, how can we see this? And so we decided we would do a limited run, which we did. (laughs) It was like a week long run and it was an online thing and people came and saw it. And we, you know, we were excited about that, but then festivals began to come back. And so we were like, great, you know, well, let's, let's start to reconnect with festivals. And, you know, the film's no longer available to the general public because we wanted to make sure that we could continue to play at film festivals. Almost every single festival that canceled has come back. You know, some are doing better than others in terms of audience participation, but it's been amazing and we get to do these Q&As. It's, it's awesome to, you know, be able to connect with audiences this way. It's not the same because it's just very different when you can be in the room and experience a film um, but we can't do that right now. So the next best thing is this. We should emphasize that we have chosen, and this we've done this with all our films, to self-distribute. So this is our word for other filmmakers. We've had distributors who are agents or whatever, but we know that when anybody takes your film, they're going to keep almost all of the money. They might put you in better places, but we really start working at the place where other filmmakers often give up which is when the film is finally finished. And I think that's what we're proudest of is our, our post-production work, getting the film out there. So we- Distribution, are distribution, yeah. Yeah, so we are celebrating this is, we have just signed up for our 60th screening for the film. And so 60 screenings is, that's a hell of a lot of screenings for a tiny little niche film. And that's, we've done that all ourselves, Amy and I. That's all 60 of them so it can be done it's a lot of work but it can be done so much work <laughs> well i did one this is a total non sequitur but you're the only person who's brought up Maisel's salesman and our movie i do have an ending this is this is very strange i actually did a journalist story many years ago about the original sales the star of of Maisel's salesman and i was at his deathbed which was in boston in a 
in a horrible hospital in Boston. He was an indigent patient and he barely knew I was there. He answered a couple of questions and, and the people in the hospital didn't even know he was the star of the famous film Salesman. So I, I've been at the worst moment of salesmanship and I guess a total difference, the triumph of Chaim Brook, uh, a salesman who works, who, who does the American dream and the Jewish dream and is doing it out. So I've been everywhere. I've been there, Ben. I've been there. That's fantastic. I'm so glad I brought that up so I could hear that anecdote. Did I hear you hint earlier that your next film will also involve one of the rabbis from this film? Are you planning on doing a whole series of rabbi films, kind of like those Harry Kellerman, Friday the Rabbi, did this kind of thing, mystery novels? <laughs> we don't know that series. <laughs> I, of course I know it. It's All right, me. sorry. You don't know that series? What kind of a Jewish person <laughs> are you, Amy Geller? Yeah, the Harry Kellerman series. My gosh, okay. You know, we weren't planning on doing a series of rabbi films, as films often happen. Um, but Alan Setcher, who's kind of the elder rabbi mm -hmm. of the film, um, he approached us and said that I have a story that I really want to tell. And will you capture it? And so we listened to his story and we thought, OK, we don't know what this is. We don't know if this is going to be a movie. We don't know what it is. But like he's 85 years old now and we better get this on camera. So, Jerry, you can explain the film. Yeah, so we started filming already, a COVID filming. We shot Alan Setcher in his home in Bozeman, Montana. And we- Whitefish. And Whitefish, yeah, right, right. Whitefish, Montana. And we had a live crew, but who stayed away from him. And we also, at the same time, did a Zoom call with me asking questions. And we filmed the Zoom. So you see both of us on Zoom and also- shot in a normal way. So that's a start. But the story of Alan Setcher was that he was one of 16 rabbis who in 1964 was called by Martin Luther King to come to St. Augustine, Florida to help to integrate the city. And this was before Selma and it's this completely violent act. And it ended up with 16 rabbis spend, being arrested and spending the night in jail the biggest mass arrest of rabbis in the history of America. So it happened a long time ago, uh, many years ago, only two of the rabbis still are in a position either alive and can talk. So we're starting something that we care about, which is about the relationship between the Jewish world and the African-American world and how in a Black Lives Matter period, especially it's important for Jews to be there for the struggle of black people. And this story is kind of a model from many years ago of how it can work in a really good way. So this is my plug. If anybody out there in TV land is interested, um, Ben would know how to contact us because what do you need for making independent movies? Money, money. Um, so if anybody would like to support a film about Jews and the civil rights movement, come to Amy and I, we are, we are on our way. I hope it works out. Whatever final form it takes, I hope you can bring it back to Madison. Come visit us again in person. Thank you so much, Amy and Jerry. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Wisconsin. Thank you. Madison, thank you, Wisconsin Film Festival. It's been wonderful talking to both of you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Bye.